is Mark 15, 1. And you may ask, well, why that one verse? Because from that one verse, we're going to be looking at a couple other places in the Gospels. And so this becomes a place from which we are going to look more closely at a couple other uh, accounts in the other parallel passages found in Matthew and in Luke. But let me read for you Mark 15.1. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. We all have regrets from the past that we would like to wipe away from our memories once and for all. The consequences of sinful words, actions, and decisions from the past may even yet manifest themselves in our present lives many years after they were committed. Regret, dear ones, is a characteristic that may be found in all mankind. But repentance, repentance is a saving grace that is found only in those who have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Regret does express sorrow, but only repentance expresses a godly sorrow that leads to everlasting life. It is important that we understand the difference between mere regret and repentance. If we would know the difference between everlasting condemnation and everlasting life. For those who suffer forever in the torments of hell will have known regret. It is true. But they will never have known Repentance. Only those who live forever enjoying the glory of Christ in heaven will have known repentance. Peter knew what it was to repent, while Judas only knew what it was to regret. This Lord's Day, let us consider what the Spirit of God teaches concerning the difference between regret and repentance. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. Number one, Jesus under the judgment of the whole Sanhedrin. We'll be using Mark 15.1 and then going over to Luke chapter 22 verses 66 through 71 for this first main point. And then the second main point, Judas under the judgment of God. Mark 15:1 and then jumping over to Matthew 27 verses 1 through 10. And so our first main point, Jesus under the judgment of the whole Sanhedrin. 
We've read Mark 15.1. I invite you then to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And let me read for you verses 66 through 71. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. As we begin chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel, the Lord is now about to enter the third phase of these Jewish trials. You'll recall that the first phase of Christ's trial was before Annas, a previous high priest, and we saw that in John chapter 18, verses 13 through 23. The second phase of Christ's trial was before Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, who was the current high priest. In Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. And now begins the third phase of Christ's trial before the whole council, literally the Sanhedrin in Mark 15.1. By this time, Peter has already denied knowing the Lord three times and has left the palace of the high priest, heartbroken over what he has just done to his Lord. As our text in Mark 15.1 begins, we note that the dawning of Christ's crucifixion day has now arrived. In Mark 15.1 it says, And straightway in the morning. Luke 22.66 states, And as soon as it was day. This is another phase from the previous ones which were during the hours between midnight and morning. This is a different phase. This is not repeating what had gone on in the previous trials. This is a third phase. After morning. As soon as it was day. The day has now dawned. You might suppose it to be somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m. in the morning. During the night, the Lord had endured the preliminary interrogation and mockery of justice by Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. The Lord finally volunteered, you recall, the information that they desired when he declared himself to be the Son of God. In Mark 14:62. Now that daybreak has arrived, the Sanhedrin convenes again not to conduct any further preliminary investigation, but to formally accuse Christ. 
of blasphemy. Matthew and Mark do not give the contents of this third phase, but Luke opens the doors to this formal aspect of the trial in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Again, back now looking not at Mark 15, but Luke chapter 22. This time in the third phase, the Sanhedrin does not waste any time with witnesses. Previously, they had sought witnesses. No longer do they bring forth witnesses. In verse 67, they go directly to the question, Art thou the Christ? Are you Israel's Messiah who was prophesied to come by the prophets in the scriptures? The Lord reveals the hardness of their hearts by saying, in effect, why should I tell you who I am? You won't believe me anyway. And you won't answer the questions that I should put to you. And you won't let me go. Why should I tell you who I am? You only want me to testify of myself so that you can condemn me without witnesses. He then bears witness to the truth that he is the Son of God in chapter 22 of Luke, verses 69 through 71, when he says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. It's interesting that when the Lord says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God, They don't ask him, well, then, are you the son of man that was prophesied? They infer from that the question they ask, are you the son of God? Even in their own minds, they understood that the son of man would, or the son of God would be the son of man. That they were not two distinct, different persons. They were the same person. One bearing the nature of God, bearing the nature of man. That's at least inferred uh, from from the question that is asked Jesus at that point. Again, dear ones, the Lord did not remain silent, though he could have at that point, but he voluntarily spoke and testified in order that he might go to the cross and suffer for his elect bride the wrath that she deserved. He spoke so that his infinite love for his unworthy bride chosen from all eternity might be made manifest. For his silence would have been his own preservation, though it would have been our condemnation. For without his testimony that he was the eternal Son of God, they could not have falsely accused him of blasphemy. But dear ones, his testimony was, in fact, his own condemnation. But it was our salvation. 
the fact that he spoke. For it was on the basis of that testimony, which they called blasphemy, that they determined he must die. Remember that to the Jews, to be the Son of God did not make Christ inferior to God, but rather made Christ equal to God, that is, as one having the very nature of God. As is said in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where it says that he called himself the Son of God, therefore making himself equal to God. Dear ones, in looking at these wicked judges, we must never take the spotlight entirely off of ourselves. For if left to ourselves and left in our natural rebellion against Christ, we too would have condemned the Lord Jesus as certainly as did the Sanhedrin. We would never have believed the testimony of Christ that he is the Son of God who voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep, apart from the effectual work of God's grace in our hearts. Oh, dear ones, it is not the blindness or hardness of these judges of Israel that is truly so amazing. What is truly amazing is that we who were likewise blind judges of Christ, we who condemned him and spat upon him, and beat him. It was for us. He went to the cross and purchased our salvation. That is what is truly amazing. Listen, dear ones. The sins of others should never have the effect of puffing us up with pride as if we are better than they. The sins of others should rather humble us even as we remember that we would be doing precisely the same thing if it were not for the love of Jesus Christ and for the grace of Christ and for the power of Christ who has granted to us the gospel that we might believe and be delivered from that rebellion from that condemnation. Yes, we should be indignant at sin, beginning with our own sin, because sin is an affront to the beautiful holiness, the glorious righteousness of God. But our sin and the sin of others, dear ones, should also crush our pride as we consider that it was our sin that sent the Lord Jesus Christ into those very courts to be subjected to such mockery and hatred and injustice. He was already suffering. Even at that point in time, he was already suffering for his elect bride as he was abandoned by his disciples and condemned by the nation of Israel. Our second main point, moving from Jesus under the judgment of the Sanhedrin, now we would consider Judas under the judgment of God. And I would have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. 
and I will read that portion of Scripture at the outset. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. We now turn our attention from the mockery of justice under which the sinless Son of God suffered to the justice of God under which the betrayer, Judas, now suffered. The only gospel that includes this information about Judas is that of Matthew. Thus, let us turn and consider Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10, as we have read it, as we consider the awful judgment that fell upon Judas. Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2 state essentially what we have already seen in Mark 15, 1 concerning the third phase of Jewish trial and then prepares us for the next stage in the trial of Christ, which is the Roman investigation before Pilate. But neatly tucked away between the end of the Jewish trial and the beginning of the Roman trial is the account of Judas under the judgment of God, as it's found in verses 3 through 10 of Matthew 27. Let us first consider, as we look at this, these verses, the regret of Judas, and then we're going to consider the end of Judas. The regret of Judas, first of all, in verses 3 through 5. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. We'll stop there. It would appear that Judas may have actually sat through the final phase of Christ's Jewish trial. For we read in Matthew 27, 3, 
Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he, that is Christ, was condemned. Perhaps it was the obvious unjust treatment of Christ and the outright lies told concerning Christ. Or perhaps the bloody head and the face of Christ received at the hands of the temple officers that awakened his conscience to the enormity of his sin. All that we know is that after Christ was condemned by the Sanhedrin as worthy of death for his alleged blasphemy and testifying that he was the Son of God, the conscience of Judas so plagued him that he went to the temple precincts to seek to ease the pangs of his tormented conscience. For Matthew 27.3 continues, When he saw that he, that is Christ, was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. You see, the full weight of his sin was now weighing down upon Judas. And he felt as if he was drowning in the guilt of his sin. And seeking relief, Judas thought that it was the thirty pieces of silver he had received to betray Christ that was pulling him under the waves of that guilt. And if he could simply get rid of that blood money... He would be set free from the relentless, unremitting condemnation of a guilty conscience. There is a direct grammatical connection between the repenting of Judas and the returning of the money. For literally it reads, having sorrowed or having regretted he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. In other words, Judas returned the blood money due to the regret that was overwhelming him at that time. The Greek word used here in Matthew 27.3 for, for Judas having repented himself is not the word ordinarily used for repentance that leads to salvation but is a word which means regret. There is obviously intense sorrow and pangs of conscience in the regret of Judas, but it does not lead Judas to repentance, forgiveness, or life. For as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the sorrow of the world worketh death. We might ask, why does the sorrow of the world work death? And this is where I want to list several ways in which we distinguish regret from repentance. Why does the sorrow of the world work death? Well, the sorrow or regret of the world works death because it is only sorrow for the bad consequences of sin that have fallen out upon oneself or fallen out upon others. Whereas repentance sorrows over not only the consequences of sin, but sorrows supremely over the offense committed against a holy and righteous God. 
and yet a merciful God. God has been dishonored and it breaks the heart of one who truly repents. I ask you, what do you sorrow for? What do you sorrow for? Consequences? Is that all? That you got caught? Or that it's made your life miserable? Or made the lives of others miserable? Or do you sorrow because you have offended the most holy and most merciful God? Secondly, the sorrow or regret of the world works death because it focuses only upon the sin committed and its devastating consequences. It may even, it may even focus its attention This regret may even focus its its attention upon hell as being one of the consequences of sin. Whereas repentance not only looks at the sin committed and its terrible consequences, but also by means of the eye of faith looks to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus as the only remedy to the guilt of sin and the ultimate consequences of sin. I ask you, dear ones, do you focus only upon sin and its consequences? Or do you also focus upon the remedy to that sin that is found alone in the Lord Jesus Christ? Thirdly, the sorrow or regret of the world works death because it merely hates. It merely hates. Put that in, highlight that word hates the consequences of sin. Whereas repentance hates, it despises not only the consequences of sin, but also the temptation to sin and the sin itself. Because it is contrary to the holiness of God. It is contrary to the revealed will of God. And therefore despises and hates it. And I ask you, do you hate only the consequences of sin? Whether being caught, publicly exposed, censured, disciplined, restricted of privileges, or hell itself? Or do you hate also the very temptations to sin and the sin that would lead you away from the Savior? Fourthly, The sorrow or regret of the world works death because it merely makes promises to behave differently in the future as if bargaining with God. Whereas repentance sincerely endeavors new obedience because of the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there is no bargaining with God in repentance. There is only a solemn endeavor to show through new obedience one's thankfulness to God for the imputed righteousness of Christ, for the free forgiveness of God, and for the everlasting life of the Holy Spirit. Do you bargain? Do you bargain with God or do you endeavor to live obediently unto Christ from a thankful heart for the many mercies freely bestowed upon you, such an unworthy, undeserving sinner? Fifthly, the sorrow or regret of the world 
works death. Because it is merely a form of penance. It's merely a form of penance wherein I must do something to satisfy the guilt of my sin. Whether by confessing my sins, as did Judas, when he said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Or whether by making restitution, as did Judas, in returning the blood money. Or whether by inflicting pain upon oneself, as did Judas, in committing suicide. This is the poisonous teaching of the Romish church, penance. It is based upon the covenant of works rather than upon the covenant of grace. Yes, we should confess our sins to the Lord and to others whom we have offended. Yes, we should make restitution to those that we have injured. But we do not do so in order to satisfy the guilt of our sin in any sense. We confess our sins and make restitution because we would joyfully and thankfully obey our Lord for the mercy and grace that he has bestowed upon us and thereby evidence true faith and repentance in our lives. Only the righteousness of Christ is perfectly able to be the grounds for our justification. Only the righteousness of Christ in perfectly obeying the law of God for unworthy sinners and in perfectly suffering the wrath of God for condemned sinners can satisfy and remove from us the guilt of our sin against the holy God. There is none other. Do you find yourself, dear ones, looking for things you can do to satisfy the guilt of sin? Or rather, do you find yourself appealing to what Christ has done to satisfy the guilt of sin? And sixthly, the sorrow regret of the world works death, dear ones, because it will never lead to comfort, peace, or joy. It cannot do so, for it can only focus. Regret can only focus on the sin and the consequences of sin. There is no remedy in mere regret. Only repentance, true biblical repentance, can bring true comfort, peace, and joy, for it looks by faith beyond the sin and the consequences of sin to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, which alone can lift the burden and relieve the condemning conscience. Do you find yourself, dear ones, amazed with sin and its consequences? Or do you find yourself amazed with the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? Is mourning over sin the end of repentance? Or is the comfort and communion with Christ the end of repentance? Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are they that mourn. That's not the end of it. 
for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Dear ones, are you regretful over sin in your life or are you repentant over sin in your life? Those who only exercise regret over sin will, like Judas, suffer the eternal condemnation of a holy God in hell. Not only will they be unable to satisfy the flames of conscience set on fire in this life, but they will be unable to satisfy the eternal flames of hell that will burn not only their conscience, but their bodies forever in the lake of fire. However, those who exercise repentance over sin will, like Peter, regret the sin that they have committed. Yes. And even though they may endure the consequences of their sin in this life, they will receive the forgiveness of God through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we return to our text in Matthew chapter 27, continuing on with what occurs there, we note that the chief priests and the elders were not impressed with the confession of Judas in verse 4. You see what they said after Judas says that he has betrayed innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See thou to it. Take care of it yourself. Don't bother us with you know, your confession. We find here, I would submit to you further testimony that Christ was not put to death for his own sin, but for the sin of others. For the very disciple who betrayed the Lord into the hands of the Jewish rulers confessed that he was the one who had sinned and not Christ. He had betrayed Christ. Jesus Christ, he was saying, was innocent of any crime and out of the mouth of the very one who betrayed him. God establishes a faithful testimony. Amazing. But this did not seem to affect the hardened hearts of, the, of those particular rulers of Israel in the least. If any one should have known whether Christ was deserving of death, it should have been one who had for over three years lived with him, sat at his feet, watched him, observed him, and heard his teaching, observed his miracles. But even Judas confessed that there was no guilt in Christ. How this demonstrates that the problem with man, dear ones, the problem with man, with man in rejecting Jesus Christ when he is offered to them in the gospel, is not a lack of evidence or a lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of life. Man's problem is that by nature he is dead in his trespasses and sins and cannot believe until he is graciously called forth from the dead by the power of Christ and given faith even as the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead. 
and gave him the ability to come forth from that grave. According to Matthew 27.5, Judas then flings the blood money upon the floor of the temple. But it would appear he never dealt with the root sin that led to Christ's betrayal. Yeah, he got rid of the blood money, but what was it that led to his desire to have that money? Covetousness. Judas coveted power, fame, and money, and when it appeared that Christ would not be securing for him these particular goals and desires, he turned against Christ and betrayed him to the Jewish rulers who he thought would grant him what he desired. But in the end, as we see here, Judas lost it all. He lost power. He lost fame. He lost money. This is the inevitable plight of the non-Christian, dear ones. They will lose. And they will lose it all. To contrast that with the hope of the Christian, according to Philippians 1.21, they will gain. And they will gain it all. For the Apostle Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is not loss. To die is gain. What a contrast. Knowing these things, dear ones, how could any of us want to follow in the plight of Judas? Having heard the Gospel proclaimed, having been invited to Christ, having participated in even the office of being an, uh, an apostle, having been given the miraculous ability to perform miracles, to teach the truth, and yet to be lost. Lost to lose it all. Not only to die, not only to die by way of hanging himself, but to lose it all. And that's where we want to note the end of Judas. In Matthew 27, verses 5 through 10. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for it to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Dear ones, as I said, Judas not only lost the power, fame, and money that he coveted, but he even lost his own life in this world and lost his soul in everlasting torment. For when even getting rid of the blood money, by throwing it upon the floor of the temple, he went out and hung himself because he could not be 
relieved from the shoutings of that unremitting guilty conscience that continued to plague him. He could not find satisfaction. He could not find relief. He went out and hung himself. And the weight of his body apparently broke the branch of the tree from which he was hanging, causing his body to be burst upon the rocks below, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 18. The end of Judas. Not a pleasant one. Dear ones, let no one think for a moment that murdering oneself is less heinous than murdering others. It is not an act of mercy to destroy the life that God gives. Capital punishment, a just war, and lawful self-defense are certainly exceptions. They are not murder. But murdering oneself, whether one calls it suicide or mercy killing or whatever they call it, it is contrary to the revealed will of God. It is murder. All the arguments in the world that promote the wicked wisdom of this age in justifying mercy killing actually usurp the authority of God himself who gives life and takes life away. Dear ones, although suicide in and of itself is not the unpardonable sin, it is a most grievous and heinous sin that we should not commit any more than we would intentionally commit in murdering our own child or our spouse or our parent. Finally, note the hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders. They would not accept the money back that they themselves had first given to Judas to betray Christ that they might put him to death. Because they said it's unlawful to take such money and put it into the treasury. What hypocrisy. But they would take it and they would use it for, in their minds, some benefit to strangers who died while in Jerusalem. They would take the money and use it to purchase a field, a potter's field, as a gravesite for strangers. Dear ones, here is a lesson for us all. Never, ever forget where our hypocrisy will lead us. Hypocrisy will lead us to self-deception. The Pharisees apparently believed they were doing a good deed by using this, this blood money in such a humane manner. They were completely self-deceived. But that's where our hypocrisy, where we began to, to practice something on the outside by merely going through the motion. It is not true of us in the inside. For we simply live a Christian life without the Spirit of God apart from 
the change of heart. Apart from trusting in Christ alone for our eternal salvation. This is where hypocrisy will lead us. What the Pharisees were doing was actually a fulfilling of prophecy according to Matthew 27 verses 9 through 10 which is a fulfillment of Zechariah 11 verses 12 through 13. But why does Matthew say that this prophecy was made by Jeremiah if it was in fact found in Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 and 13? Well, most likely because Jeremiah in the ancient order of the Hebrew Bible stood first in the listing of the prophetical books. Thus, rather than citing the specific prophet, Matthew cites the first book of the prophets. In effect, saying that this prophecy is found in the prophets of the Old Testament by citing the first book. Well, in conclusion, dear ones, fulfillment of this prophecy, the purchasing of a field of blood, with this blood money, I would submit to you as a type and a picture of what Christ would accomplish for unwanted strangers and aliens to the covenant of grace. Just as it was the blood money that purchased the resting place for the bodies of strangers that died in Jerusalem, in Zion, so it was the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased a final resting place in heaven for the bodies and souls of all Gentile strangers who will come to Christ and receive by faith alone Christ and his righteousness. That which appeared to be the worst and most heinous sin in all of history, God used to purchase the salvation of aliens and strangers to the covenant of grace even from the nations of the whole world. And he has brought these aliens and strangers into that covenant of grace where they are united with those believing Jews who trust in Jesus Christ alone. It is their covenant which we are brought into. It is that covenant that God made with Israel of old that we Gentiles are brought into. It is not our covenant that they are brought into. It is their covenant which we are brought into. They are the original and natural olive branches. The root are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the true Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ, that seed to whom all the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob point. And we as aliens and strangers are grafted into that covenant of grace by His mercy. And we are given an eternal resting place through the purchase of that inheritance through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the glory, dear ones, of the gospel presented to us even in this picture. 
May God help us as we now close to not merely regret as did Judas, but may God grant to us repentance as he did to Peter in turning from his sin and looking to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus as a satisfaction for his sin. Not anything that Peter could do, but all that Christ could do. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.